Well, hello and welcome to the Psychedelic Diaries. I'm your host, Ray Christian, and mm, do we have a good show for you today. The CEO of Practical Recovery and the co-founder of Smart Recovery will be on the show. We'll do a deep dive, we'll do a soul search, and of course, we'll do a nugget, and at the end, a noodle. Producer Kevin is here, but let's start the show as usual with a news nugget in the psychedelic world. So Wisana Health has acquired SciTech for $20 million. In the last couple of weeks, Wisana Health has done quite a bit, making a name for themselves. And the SciTech team has what looks to be some seasoned guys, and they've just launched and run an online digital conference. So Wisana is making moves. They're actually advised by a friend and role model of mine, Dr. James Fadiman. And anything he's working on, I'm a fan of. Congrats to the Wisana and SciTech teams. Well, that's it for today's news nugget. Producer Kevin, do we have Dr. Tom Horvath on the line? We do. Ladies and gentlemen, if I may direct your attention, as I mentioned, he is the CEO of Practical Recovery and one of the co-founders of Smart Recovery, one of the world's foremost experts in addiction, Dr. Tom Horvath. Thank you for joining the show. Happy to be here, Ray. Thanks. Okay, well, let's dive right in. So one of the exciting things about psychedelics, Tom, is its ability to incite change. And there is perhaps no more difficult change than addiction. And that happens to be an area of your focus. What is it about change in your mind that is so difficult for people? Change is certainly easier for some people and they seek it out. For many people, the routine is preferred, but we all get caught in routines and our routines get cued by our environments. It's mm. one of the reasons people need to have a sleep routine so that it cues them to actually fall asleep. Uh, if you can radically change your environment, changing your behavior becomes possible, but most of us can't just get up and move to another town or another home, at least not without a lot of effort. So we get pulled backwards more than we get pulled forwards into change, I would say. And that's why we need pattern interrupters like vacations and moves and new jobs and psychedelics, um, which can all serve that function. I love this idea of disrupting the pattern in your current routine. Aside from a new job, a big vacation, a move, or even psychedelics, which some people may not have access to. May I ask, is there an easy hack to do in day-to-day -day life to switch up a routine that you like? Often just being mindful, having decided to make a change and then planning a little bit of time to remind yourself because we fall into patterns and habits so easily. And we want to, because we don't want to be thinking about every little thing we do all day long. That's the purpose of habit. <laughs> but we need to make an effort to pull ourselves out of it and get the balance right. So all of us have changed habits when it's been important. We can't change too many at the same time or we'll go crazy. We, we just don't have enough bandwidth mentally to do that. But when we get focused, 
perhaps with some external support, some reminders, some things as simple as a post-it on your bathroom mirror about what you're going to do this morning uh, can make a difference. The post-it, unfortunately, I, I'm not connected with 3M, use whatever brand you want, but uh, if you leave it there more than a few days, you'll stop seeing it. So you might have to change colors every two, three days. You need pattern interrupters of your pattern interrupters. <laughs> with effort, all of us make changes. So it's entirely possible. Oh, that's really good. I like that. That's a nice, easy one. So Tom, you've worked with alcoholism, addiction. You've seen men and women at various stages of the challenge and is perhaps one of the most vexing issues in life to try to kick and have it like that. For you as a therapist, a psychotherapist, what has been one of the most satisfying parts of the experience? And then what do you say is probably one of the more challenging parts from your perspective? Well, the good news is that most of us do actually overcome our addictive problems. It usually takes us longer than we'd like, certainly longer than our loved ones would like, but most people are successful. What's frustrating is how long it can take and the reality in a practice like ours, practical recovery, is that every year, typically, we lose clients to death uh, because that's a reality if you're dealing with a lot of people. So that is certainly, it's more than frustrating, it's very upsetting. Um, so yeah. there are bad outcomes, but for most people, the outcomes are good and that's what I stay focused on. It does help to focus on the positives if you can, but that is, uh, that's a quite poignant experience, I would imagine. And speaking about those positive outcomes, as you've worked with men and women of various ages throughout the process of trying to develop a new habit and kick an addiction, for the ones that have had success, do you see certain themes, certain talking points for the patients of yours that have kind of gotten ahead of it and gotten into a good place? I have two answers to this question, and each one has bullet points. So the first answer is that, uh, and I say this in our practice, in order to make a change, you need to fo focus on motivation, coping with craving, solving your old problems in new ways, achieving better lifestyle balance, improving your relationships, because that's really what's important in life, and having a greater sense of meaning and purpose. When I look beyond them, uh, I will say to, to clients, there's three things that it seems everybody does when they're successful. Uh, treatment is not one of them, by the way. The industry emphasizes treatment. Treatment works. And uh, I think that's rather self-serving. Now, I provide treatment, and I'm proud of what I do, and I'm happy when people seek out our services, but I have never said that treatment is essential. What is essential is to make a decision that it's time to work on this, to have the persistence to follow through, because this is typically like a child learning how to walk, learning how to walk, you're going to fall down a lot. And the key thing is, do you keep getting up? So there's a, a great example of persistence. And lastly, some vision for what the future holds. Why am I going to all this effort? Uh, a child can see adults walking. So that's probably inspiring to babies, toddlers, as they do this. 
uh, we need to have a vision for ourselves. So make a decision, persist through it, and have a vision of where you're going. If treatment or mutual help groups or medications uh, are part of the picture, that's certainly fine. Those are resources that are available to people. But it's those three things that I think are the, the key points. A decision, persistence, and vision. That is brilliant. I, I love that. And uh, so curious to, to engage a little thought experiment and maybe you apply that. Uh, one of the things I've noticed throughout this concept of ego death and my own personal psilocybin experience, it doesn't always happen. It's somewhat infrequent, but one of the experiences is it has felt like a resetting of my own existence such that it almost was like I was an alien that was zapped into this body all of a sudden. I've forgotten everything I knew, and I just had all these potential inputs in my current environment, and, it, and the universe said, okay, now go. What can you do with this? And it's a fascinating experience, and I was curious for you, an expert in addiction. Let's say your consciousness, your soul is zapped into the body of someone that has a crippling meth addiction or heroin addiction. What might you do? What steps would you take to try to solve the riddle and get out of it? Wow. First of all, it's hard for me to imagine. So I'm going to do my best. <laughs> um, but let me go with this because I do like, I like thought experiments. I think they're very helpful. Um, so as I'm coming to the realization of what's going on, I realize that I... I'm going to crash for a while because I'm going to stop using the meth. I know that that's potentially going to make me psychotic. Um, it's one of the scary outcomes from chronic meth use. And I have seen it make people psychotic, not only temporarily, but permanently. Um, so I'm well aware of where it's going. And uh, so I'm going to stop. I'm going to crash. I may feel miserable for two weeks. It's going to definitely require a sense of vision to get through those two weeks because you're just dragging around. Physically, you feel terrible. Psychologically, you feel terrible. I'm going to be aware that these massive cravings are going to hit me and just every cell in my body is going to be screaming out for more meth because meth will, or probably any stimulant at that point, but meth specifically, will make me feel better. And this is the classic problem in addictive behavior is that in any given moment, it's always better to use your substance than not. Uh, the good part of not using doesn't show up until later, and sometimes a long time later. When you crash from meth, the good part doesn't show up for a few weeks, and I feel miserable right now. So meth solves the problem right now, and I've just been solving my problems right now for a long time, so um, it's going to be a challenge. And uh, beyond that, I'm just going to expect uh, that all the relationships I've burned, because if I'm that far into it, I've burned a few people, are going to take a long time to trust me again. And uh, I'm just going to need to be very patient. It's, it's an irony. It's so amazing that people can make this change because just at the point where they've kind of destroyed most of their positive habits. It's when they need them the most to make the change. It mm. sounds impossible, yet people do it. So it does suggest we are very strong when we put our minds to something. Wow, 
what a savvy take. And it sounds like a lot of what you're doing is kind of detailing out the enemy, labeling it and kind of knowing what's going to happen. So you're not as surprised and your expectations and reality are somewhat aligned. <laughs> I love that take. Thank you for sharing on a, kind of a difficult concept perhaps. So somewhat related to that is this idea of that, that some people talk about where anxiety, depression, and addiction may actually be symptoms of the same neurological issue, the same neural paths malfunctioning, or the same neural path that's really dominating most thoughts. All roads, all streams lead to this one river. And I'm curious with your extensive experience in all three, uh, how do you see the Venn diagram overlap of those three anxiety, depression, and addiction? Typically, in my experience, there's significant overlap for many, if, if not most of the people I have known with addictive problems. Um, as to underlying mechanisms, I'm much more um, uncertain about what's going on. I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with at least one theory that, that suggests that they arise from a single cause. Uh, from a Darwinian perspective, anything that disrupts survival uh, I mean, then that might be a way to, to look at this. Huh. What I have most experience with is people who are using substances to cope with anxiety and depression. And of course, they are quite effective in the short run. Uh, there's no better antidepressant than alcohol in the short run, meaning minutes, <laughs> hours. Uh, unfortunately, it's a depressant that kicks in a little bit later. So, um, if I graph it, whatever point I start at, I go up when I use, and then I go back down. And the, the new down is a little bit lower than where I started from. So I got this jagged line that's headed mm. downward uh, over time. If the, if the jagged line doesn't go downward, then I'm a moderate drinker. But if it goes, and it's got a lot of flat parts in it, but if it's jagged and going down, then I got problems and it's making my depression worse. So there, connected. I'm looking forward to see what the neuroscientists can come up with. Uh, my experience of neuroscience is that they're always predicting things a lot faster than they actually can find them. <laughs> so I'm not, um, there could be a dramatic breakthrough at any time, but I'm not counting on it and it won't um, uh, diminish the role of the things we already do, like counseling and mutual help groups and the medications we already have, we may get better ones. Uh, so yeah, I'm giving you a firm, let's wait and see. Well, it's a tough one to, to really predict and, and map out, I agree. And, and I think it's somewhat overlapped with this idea of, of potential breakthroughs with psychedelics. And um, you are still a psychotherapist and you've managed dozens, maybe hundreds over the years. And, and actually, if I may, you, they say you don't really know someone until you do business with them. And Tom, you were one of the first people that uh, did work together with Techspert. And at the time, it was called Amy, now the Resilience Doc. And you were just an absolute joy to work with, if I may say so myself. But as an expert in psychotherapy, someone that's managed many of them, psychedelics could lead to a golden age of psychotherapy. On the other hand, it may be so effective that it can reduce some people's need for psychotherapy. And I'm curious, um, as you have your finger on the pulse in that industry, 
what is the general feeling of a lot of the psychotherapists you know towards psychedelics? I think that you and others who listen to your uh, presentations uh, as people at the cutting edge are going to be disappointed to learn what I think is true about psychotherapists, that most of them don't pay that much attention to psychedelics. Mm -hmm. Those who do, some of them may think that it's just a fad. Um, one of the things that's true about psychotherapy is that a lot of new ideas arrive, but none of them go away. So it's not come and go, it's just come and come and come. Uh, the therapies that people were doing 100 years ago are still in operation. And whether that's good or bad, I don't know. Uh, what I think we also know is generally speaking, they all work to about the same level of effectiveness. The first thing that psychedelic assisted therapy is gonna to have to show is that it's as good as anything else. And then can it show that it's better? I wouldn't be surprised if it's better, but uh, the jury's out. So we'll have to see. Most psychotherapists I don't think feel threatened. I certainly don't feel threatened. If it, if it reduced the need for therapy, that would be fantastic because there's a lot of people who could benefit from psychotherapy uh, who don't have the opportunity to get it. And psychedelics, like everything else, are not going to work for everybody. And apparently, um, some level of openness to new experience, uh, which is a major personality factor, may be required to benefit from psychedelics. I've heard examples, clinical examples, of people who just were really stuck in the tried and true and psychedelics were not gonna make much inroad into the way they deal with the world. So I hope um, that they will uh, have a, be a powerful addition to what we're doing, but what we need to see uh, relevant to this is over 15 years ago, I made the effort to go to the Peruvian rainforest so that I could do ayahuasca and uh, have it in the proper setting with a shaman and a group of people who did the diet and did the rituals. And I got, at least on the surface, um, the biggest outcome is that I passed out four times. <laughs> I vomited a lot. And uh, I think I was calmer as a result, but in terms of having some stunning revelatory experience, it didn't happen. I score high on openness to new experience on the tests I've taken. So I don't think that was the factor. As one of my holistically oriented friends said, well, maybe ayahuasca isn't your path to enlightenment. And that's kind of where we left it. So even somebody yeah. has a high intention to benefit won't necessarily get something out of it. Although I'm glad I did it. Well, I appreciate that share. And uh, I also loved your take on this idea of how the fact that it could speed up therapy for some might actually open up the path to more people engaging therapy. If they think that it doesn't require five years of every week, that might make a bigger market for it, which I love that take. And, and I appreciate the concept of that. It's not for everybody. It doesn't work for everybody the same. And speaking of, of uh, you know, kind of hot takes and personal experiences, thank you for that share about ayahuasca. You and I have talked a little bit about what it's like as a man in today's society, um, specifically out there dating. And as a younger man, more specifically, maybe in our 20s and our 30s, uh, the internal struggle and perhaps even a little guilt 
about being a young man that sows his oats. And I'm curious, as you look back on those years and maybe how it affected you or, or some of the emotions you went through, what takeaways do you have on it now? Well, I've thought about these issues a lot um, because I've, I deal with addiction all the time. And I've come to the conclusion that there was an important distinction between addictive behavior, which to me includes food and sex and connection to others and problematic addictive behavior, which could be with any of those three, but could also be with all the substances that civilization brings. And I believe that all of us struggle to some extent with food and sex uh, and getting attention. Personally, it's been food and sex um, that have been more challenging. I know people who are definitely cravers of attention. I suspect we all do. And we see how they, uh, they manage their lives and it causes them problems. So um, somehow it would be good to create a society in which uh, particularly around sex, which involves other people and relationships and how to negotiate that in a way that can be true to both the male and the female um, evolutionary stance to survival so that people uh, can grow interpersonally and not get hurt. Uh, I didn't negotiate all of that especially well. I think I'm trying now, uh, I mean, it wasn't terrible. I didn't get any legal trouble. I didn't you know, uh, cause other serious problems, but I certainly had many embarrassing problems. Uh, and uh, I'm doing my best now. Uh, as an older person, when my, uh, one, I'm happily married, and two, my sexual drive is less than it was when I was 21, uh, trying to be a sensible model and counselor for those who are more in the grips of those kinds of temptations. Dr. Tom Horvath, your candor is refreshing. I really appreciate your take and the share. And that is a good transition point to switch over to our final segment together, the soul search. So here's the idea. Five questions, very quick. The idea, if you can, 10 seconds or less on the response. And the idea is to give the viewers, the listeners, uh, a little bit of a window into the soul. Dr. Horvath, are you game? Go for it. Okay, five questions. Fairly straightforward. Number one, I think you're going to like this one. You are on a desert island and you get one book. You have to choose between Anna Karenina and War and Peace. Who you got? Anna Karenina. Okay. Question number two. God stumbles upon you and he says, hey, Tom, you've done great work over the years. One of the best psychotherapists, in my opinion, big fan but I can't have you doing psychotherapy anymore, but I need you to continue working and you can do anything you'd like to do. What might you do? It's not really very different, but I might teach. Uh, I always loved teaching mathematics when I was a graduate student, I taught statistics. So I might do that. Teaching statistics, I love it. Okay, question number three, a little bit of a gear switch. Tom, what is the accomplishment that at this current moment, you are most proud of? I think I was a generally good and supportive father to my son. So more than anything else, I'm proud of what I was able to do and proud of the person he's become. <laughs> oh, I love that. 
Okay, question number four. Tom, what is a habit that you developed over the years or maybe even recently that you're quite proud of? Uh, I go for a morning walk every morning I don't work out. This morning I worked out, but usually I'll walk for an hour and I try to do a little writing beforehand so that I have something useful to think about for the hour. Okay, that's a good habit. And finally, kind of a cousin of that last question, Tom, is there a habit that you've broken in the last few years or recently that you're quite fond of the fact that you pulled off breaking the habit? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I'm getting better at not interrupting people when I don't agree with them. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a great one in, in theory, hard and practice. So I'm impressed. Dr. Tom Horvath, it has been a pleasure having you. Thank you for joining the show. Thank you very much. Now you can find Dr. Tom Horvath at practicalrecovery.com. I'll put the link in the description. But our final piece, producer Kevin, is the noodle. And something I've been noodling on as we have the Olympics currently happening is this idea in psychedelics of going for the gold. Now we're all a little bit gun shy about what happened in the 60s when we had so much promise and then the window got slammed shut. But this is not the 60s anymore. This is a different time. And as those of us that are fans and believers in psychedelics push for legalization, push for standardization and acceptance, go for the gold. Don't half do it. Ask for what we want, whether it's more widespread legalization, whether it's nuanced progressive approaches towards guide work or lack thereof, go for the gold. And if we have to fight, Maybe we meet in the middle somewhere that's a little more palatable. Well, that's it for today's show. Thanks to Dr. Tom Horvath, producer Kevin. Next week, we've got the field trip medical director and advisor, Dr. Randy Sharlock. See you next time.